Welcome to the second half of the first season of the SayNoKNOW.org podcast. This is the place where we have been discussing everything drug-related from policy, crime, research. We talk about what's going on on the streets. We talk about what's going on in the universities and the research areas. And uh, we talk to people with lived experience and we discuss ideas on how we can make things just a bit better. We receive funding for this podcast from the Canadian Research Initiative of Substance Misuse. You can check out the great work that they are doing at prismprairies.ca. Please note that the views and opinions expressed in our podcast do not necessarily represent the views of CRISM or any of their members, and the views also do not necessarily represent the views of my employer or any organization that I'm associated with, and the same goes for our guests. A big shout out to DJ Charlie Hustle. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for providing the excellent music that you've been hearing both on the intro and outro of our podcasts. Everybody that's listening right now, please hit the subscribe button. It helps. Also go to our Facebook page, engage with us there. If you've got questions, comments, uh, concerns, you've got new ideas, anything, head, to the, head, head on to social media, send us a tweet, um, challenge us. Uh, we're all in this together. We're all trying to make this world just a little bit better. We're trying to find some solutions at work. So I hope you enjoy the second half of the season. I sure enjoyed making it. Thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast today. I am very excited to have with me a special guest all the way from Vancouver. It's Anne Livingston. Anne Livingston is truly a pioneer when it comes to the harm reduction movement. She was one of the co-founding members of Vandu, also known as the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users. Uh, She was instrumental in getting Canada's first supervised injection site underway, known as Insight in Vancouver. And a lot of her work was also highlighted in an incredible documentary entitled The Fix. So thanks a lot for having coming on the show with us, Anne. I appreciate your time. You're welcome. Yeah. So, Anne, can you can you give us a bit of uh, a bit of a snapshot of of your work and, and especially in the early years? How did you how did you get these movements going, um, kind of from zero all the way to you know where we're at today? I think I had an incredible sense of naivety about um, what needed to be done. So I moved to this location where I still live in the Four Sisters Housing Co-op in the downtown east side of Vancouver, and I'm about two blocks from Maine and Hastings. But I don't know if you've ever been here. I'm really considered to be in Gastown. Yeah, that's right. um, You can walk very short distances and see. Um, Anyway, I'm right close by, and when I moved here, I had a a child with a disability who, uh, he still lives here, he's 36 now, um, he was about 11, and then I had a three-year-old and a five-year-old, and it was during the 90s. I think I came here in 93, and it was one of the big bad years for overdose. We had a, The rate of overdose in the 90s was only overcome again in 2016, so it was pretty frantic. And um, oh. I was a stay-at-home mom with a very low income in social housing, basically on welfare, coping with you know a kid with a disability and two little kids. But anyway, I just thought that... Um, the welfare policy coupled with the um, uh, policies of the shelters and um, free food places, which wouldn't, who they wouldn't let drug users in at that time, um, that we just needed to, you know, make a few phone calls and get the minister of this, that, or the other thing to straighten us all out. So I started uh, doing that, making phone calls, and then started just going to public meetings whenever I could. And um, uh, it became very obvious that the most important thing to do was to organize the people most affected by these crummy policies. Right. And I was really inspired by the whole movement of um, the people with disabilities. There's a guy named John McKnight who had really taught mothers of kids with disabilities that um, their children wanted to have friends, not services. Right. And this whole right. idea of oh, there's a problem, you know, let's get together, get some funding and hire some people to provide services to those people that have have this problem. And that's exactly the wrong model, he says. The best model is to have community members come together to solve community problems. Right. So that was, <laughs> that was my instigation. <laughs> and um, I just, um, you know, was on the board of the Downtown Eastside Residents Association. I did a lot of volunteer work. 
And then I became a board member of the Downtown Eastside Youth Activity Society, which was the second busiest needle exchange in North America. So I just started to really sink in, um, and I just intuitively knew what to do, which was to organize the drug users directly. So that's how we started with no money, with $100 a month or something. We were supposed to have a pizza night. (laughs) And pretty soon, no one could remember which night it was, so we started doing bi-weekly meetings, and then no one could remember which week it was, so we just met every Tuesday or it was Wednesday and then we moved it to Tuesday because Welfare Day falls on Wednesday and it was basically cookies and the struggle was to find some place that would let people that were that marginalized in to congregate. Yeah. Wow. Good for you. So what's what's your background? Are you you an academic by trade or do you, was this just kind of a, a passion project for you? Well, when I was quite young and went to university, I was doing pre-med. So I have probably a full, you know, whatever you need for pre-med. And um, I didn't um, I didn't even really apply to med school. I ended up with a difficult pregnancy and a disabled kid. So oh, right. I proceeded um, that way. And uh, so I, I can work my way through any complicated scientific journal. <laughs> and because um, I got sort of three or four years towards a degree, but I don't actually have a degree. Right. So it was all science and biology and physics and chemistry and stuff like that. So oh, I see. Um, but the rigorous training was really this understanding of um, the, uh, the, you know, that communities, um, the communities need to organize themselves. And, and um, as John says, um, when people gain the power um, to redefine the problem rather than that they're seen as the problem. So the yeah. simplest one is that gay men are the problem for AIDS, right? But right. gay men redefined the problem. They said, no, unsafe sex is yeah um, the problem so you know that's what what um and it's a very empowering thing for people who are really scapegoated and and labeled you know the average addict standing on the corner thinks that the reason they grow poppies in afghanistan is his fault you know it's a tremendous burden and i think um when we get more analysis and people think about who they are and how they got where they are that it can be um pretty empowering for them to take action Wow, that's uh, those are huge statements. Um, that that ability or that desire for a community to come forward and actually start, you know, start ad- addressing some of their own some of their own issues, I think, is huge because mm-hmm. traditionally, you're right. I mean, a lot of times it's the police, it's it's healthcare, it's you know, all kinds of different social service type agencies that are coming in saying, "Oh, you guys need." You guys need help. Here it is, and oftentimes it's it's mis, misguided and and uh, not exactly what what they what what the community actually needs. And then we always talk about. I know in a lot of my uh, presentations, I often talk about the unintended consequences of some of these mm-hmm. good natured gestures that we try to do. And I think you know part of our tainted drug supply might have been caused by some by some unintended consequences of our own actions. But sure. um, so yeah, what? Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, when you stand in front of a group of people that um, have so many problems, by the time people were coming to our group, they were criminalized. They often had hep C and AIDS or just hep C. And um, the question that was put forward in a group when you have no funding is to say, what are you already doing um, in this community that keeps people safe? And then what more can we do? So you build on the assets of the community and their own intelligence. I mean, they know a lot about scoring drugs and, um, you know, like stuff that people who don't use drugs don't know. And these these can be tremendous assets. So experts on their own lives is the other phrase that's used. So we come up with way better, I think, um, solutions, but it's also just the dignity of having them right. act on with agency and on their own um, issues rather than, I mean, there's still issues that, you know, you're not going to, have a team of drug users figure out how right. to um, operate on someone's heart for endocarditis because <laughs> right. it was drug, you know, right. related to dirty drugs. You know, I'm, I'm just saying it, you, don't, you don't get ridiculous about it, but certainly the softest kind of initiatives really need to be understood as um, how would we feel if we were constantly labeled and given services rather than income or housing or a value, you know, we like you, we know you, right. a place where you could not be isolated and meet other people and be, become part of um, 
the solution. And I think that was key right off. Um, people who came to Van Du felt they really, you know, they believe their own bad press. You know, we're pieces, we're scum, we're terrible, we're, you know, we, you know what I mean? We can't yeah. trust all that stuff. So they go from that to, um, you know, they're out picking up needles and alleys, they're distributing clean supplies. These are highly valued in Canadian society to be an unpaid volunteer, as it were. Although we, we, we quickly made a system of stipends because you just can't have people grinding along with absolutely nothing, and that's what they have. So pretty right. much everything had um, a meeting with $3 um, uh, because otherwise it'd be in a food lineup or picking up cigarette butts off the sidewalk or something. You can't worsen their conditions by yeah. having them come and improve their lives. Right. So when as soon as we were able to get a budget, we made sure that our budget was always discussed openly and lots and lots of meetings. We didn't have programming money, but if you just run a nonprofit society according to the Societies Act and have a board meeting pretty much every week, mm-hmm. um, you know, they'll see the financials that are coming in. They'll see the job description of the person working for them. They'll, you know, you, these are very important and empowering things that the average Canadian actually doesn't engage in. Right. So um, there's a skill set and um, it also keeps, kept me from always being, oh, you're the magic service provider here. I've got this wrong with me. Get me this. Get me that. Right. Instead, it was always, look, you know, you'll have to come to the board. Yeah. I don't make decisions here. And, um, you know, some that I've been, of course, assigned to make. But for the most part, anything controversial, you could always bring back for a group process. And it, it's, um, it makes the thing um, durable. Otherwise, it it can really deteriorate into terrible working conditions with people threatening the workers and you know yeah. all that kind of stuff yeah so how so how did you build that um so so right now the members of van do as it stands today do they get paid to be out in the community um as they're as they're doing this these initiatives sometimes and we you know van do doesn't get very many contracts we're still at our basic underfunded two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year i mean there's so many people in the healthcare system whose personal yeah. wages are higher than that. Right. And a ton of it's going for rents because the rents went nuts in this neighborhood. But the um, we do education, advocacy, and support. And as much as it can seem like a good thing to do rig digs and this and that, we've, we've taken contracts from time to time. But it's a distraction from a full-time work of really ensuring that people um, are educated and right. that they have someone to do advocacy for them or they learn how to be advocates and do it for each other. Right. And um, support pops up in these settings where, you know, I never say to the drug users, this is a lot like a 12-step meeting because they've often felt very rejected there and right. um, have found it, you know, the modern 12-step model was not for them. But the if you look carefully at what goes on in these meetings, there's a tremendous amount of support that pops up as I think, you know, any human beings that gather together to do a common task, they give each other support. You know, Um, it just comes up like so many, we face different crises. I think the housing crisis has increased and increased and increased over the 21 years that Vandu has been in existence. And, um, you know, at first, that wasn't quite as bad. They were in terrible single-room occupancy hotels that were squalid and horrid. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I've been but down there. I remember seeing those. Now it's now it's sleeping in an alley. I mean, right. the big problem we started to have was where the hell are we going to put all these carts? And you t- took something out of my cart and you stole my, you know, whatever. Right. It just, you know, it was a whole different thing. And you just could see the changes occurring year after year and then you, you go through and that that's the other beauty and smartness of doing a drug user group in this way with this kind of immediacy where they're meeting every week right. in fact the way vandu works now there's a um a group of people that drink um non-potable alcohol yeah um because fortified wine was barred a long long time ago in bc um oh. so they drink Listerine and mouthwash and hand sanitizer. Yeah. Yeah. In some parts of the U.S., they still have fortified wine and they they are horrified. They don't understand what we're talking about when we talk about people drinking these substances. I don't know if you know what fortified wine is. Actually, you know, I actually don't. Is that? Well, it was a strong wine. You know, um, it was 
alcohol was added to it, which is why I think why they used the term fortified. Okay. And um, like Ripple and uh, something had to do with Gypsy in it in the States is still very popular. But I don't know if it swept across Canada in the 70s here. It was it was banned. And so um, people drink sherry, I guess, to some extent. Vandu right. uh, still does an alcohol exchange program or lets people come in. And I'm sure it's illegal, uh, but we just have <laughs> a big slew of um, alcohol that's not going to kill them. Right. And they can buy it at cost for what we bought it for oh, at the I liquor see. store. So we just make sure, because the liquor store all got... Um, people thought they were being helpful to alcoholics by shutting down liquor stores. Of course, yeah. But I don't think they thought it through. (laughs) Right. um, There was rice wine, for instance, is a fortified wine, and it's very strong, but Mm -hmm. they add a ton of salt to it. And now that's basically been barred. So, you know, the best things for alcoholics um, in this neighborhood was when people were brewing their own um, wine and beer because, or mostly wine, I don't think they tried the beer, um, because it gave them a, a lot of activity to do that was something they were very interested the right. tuesday meeting at vandu does actions and that's looking out in the community and constantly keeping a, a pulse on what's going on and then on wednesday the bc association of people on methadone when vandu formed um there was people talking about methadone i think there was only two thousand people on methadone in all of british columbia and there's something like wow. 25 or thirty thousand now wow. and um but they were constantly getting kicked off and they were P-tested daily. It was just a difficult and unworkable regime. Mm-hmm. So they, um, and the chances of dying if you had been um, kicked off methadone were 50 times higher than the average opiate addicted person who was using street drugs at that time. So we knew, it, we would just constantly keep up on the research. And anyway, they formed their own group in 1999 because there were so many rock smokers and, um, that the rock smokers just said, we're not listening to any more of this methadone nonsense. Like it would go, Oh, my doctor cut me back five mils. You know what I mean? It would take a while for them to, so people would just roll their eyes and go, God. Anyway. So we, we formed a methadone group because the issues were very specific that they were dealing with. And that group's been very, very effective. So and they, they formed so, their own nonprofit society. So then they were advocating for changes to the methadone administration program? Is that Yeah, as much Great. as they could. And then individually, I mean, it got to the point where um, despite us just being a ragtag group of people with very little funding, uh, one broken computer, a roof that leaked, and a, you know, <laughs> a, a room for people to meet, we used to get 100 people per meeting or 80. Wow. Very, very high numbers came. Because no one had ever asked them to come, and they didn't belong anywhere. Right. And their shock was, you mean there's a group that's here because I use drugs? Right. Because usually there was a kind of come back in six months. When you got six months clean, that was a very common um, kind of... And people thought that being punitive towards people who use drugs would smarten them up and help them bottom out, and then they'd get right on it and they'd yeah. stop. And we didn't experience that at all. No. And I think that that... that um, that theory is exactly wrong. Yeah. I think this, the better people's lives become and the more they can see a future for themselves, the more courage they have to do something like stop using, which is a very um, a difficult thing. Even stopping cigarettes is difficult. or you know, yeah. Most people know what that's like. Right. So, you know, these aren't people go, why don't you just quit? And you just think, oh, my God, who are you? <laughs> yeah. Like, but okay, it's, it's just a common... Yeah, people get very upset because people's lives get so bad. On Thursdays, the board meets. On Fridays, the Western Aboriginal Harm Reduction Society formed at Bandu because 40% of our members were um, Indigenous or Aboriginal or, you know, from um, whatever, Métis, whatever they were. And um, it, it got so... It was just nuts. You know, we need to make sure we've got leadership to speak on behalf of people who use drugs. They're also facing racism like that and all of the other complexities. Uh, Status Indians, a whole different medical system, like they have their own issues. And then on Saturday, we formed a group called that. So it meets on Saturday. We have a lot of meetings at Vandu. (laughs) It sounds Um, like well, it's how they work. They're, you know, it's a meeting-oriented, you know, which, of course, then I don't know if people know about AA, but that's considered meeting support. Mm. Um, but anyway, the, that's the people who have um, survived the heroin prescription program. So we were lucky enough to get it in some ways, to have people put on heroin. But at the first end of the first trial, which was called Naomi, they were 
uh, put back onto methadone, and they had oh. to prove that they had failed at methadone at least twice in order to get on. So it's a little bit of cruelty, I think, yeah. and um, it was unacceptable. Um, you know, ethically, we but we really wanted the program. So they formed an, a group, and the second program came along called Salome. So now they're called the Salome Naomi Association of Patients, or SNAP. <laughs> so they're, they've been very important. And, and I would say uh, probably the most important thing is you, when you create these legal entities, they can go to court and they can get standing. And it's created a certain amount of... Um, um, People watch their P's and Q's because they know that there is the possibility that a group could get organized Mm -hmm. and uh, go to court and do a class action. So the BC Association of People on Methadone did a class action recently and won, which is just a people are jubilant. Um, They got five point five million dollars returned to people who had fees for private clinics illegally uh, removed from the the support part of their welfare checks. And um yeah, they got a lawyer, of course, which is yep. a big problem. As I say, there's <laughs> user groups, and then there's user groups with lawyers. Right. And um, I'm a co-founder of Pivot Legal Society. So that was an in, that's a, a really important strategy is that um, people who are marginalized in the way that people who use drugs are, they're often not believed about anything. They can right. be sexually assaulted or anything, and no one ever believes them. Right. Um, they're, they're that vulnerable. That means they need that extra bit of protection, I think. Um, we do it with children, but this group of people are very marginalized as well, and um, there needs to be extra care. And that Pivot Legal Society was a, a, a tremendously helpful to know that they were, uh, you know, in our court, as it were. It's a different relationship now, and it's a bit uh, more complicated. But um, for the most part, um, uh, the, the users know a lot about court. I can tell you that they're legal oh, beagles, no as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. Yeah, because they've the been run court endlessly. Yeah, so, but that's the way Vandu operates now, and they have a large membership. And um, like I said, they, it's really stalled out on getting any more support because we sort of bite the hand that feeds us, you know. Right, right. And we try to do it very politely. We try to always use evidence. A tremendous role that I had at Vandu as a non-user employee was to read widely in the field and anything I, I, uh, I would be summing things up or making PowerPoints and using a technique called popular education. So you make sure that people, no matter that they can't read or write, they know what the latest research is. Right. So as we used to say in the old days, we may not get anywhere, but we'll have the smartest drug users in the world here. <laughs> That's funny. So it sounds it sounds like you're you're a big advocate for user groups, obviously, and you've seen the you've seen the uh, the impact that it can have in in a community. Mm-hmm. Um, can you share with me some of the some of the individual? I know we t- we talked about some success stories on kind of a larger scale um, and changing mm-hmm. some programs. How about on an individual scale? Have you personally seen um, a reduction in overall addiction, or at least? Um, you know, the, the chaos that, you know, an individual's life might be currently in kind of settling down? Yeah, and this is, this is what, you know, it would be great if someone really did a research project on this. Um, we've suffered terrific losses. I think 30% of our membership is dead from the beginning, and I'm always trying to figure yes. out what, what calculus equation is it if 8% die every year, how many are dead by, I don't know if you ever took math. Yeah, but not very well, but difficult. yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. a very... Um, but there's a, a constant toll, and it's been persistent. Uh, we were hit with uh, the largest recorded outbreak of HIV amongst the drug-using population in Vancouver. They had this thing, and they still have it, the Vancouver Injection Drug User Study, which is actually funded from um, NIDA in the United States, which is oh. the National Institute on Drug Abuse or something. Anyway, um, it's a which I always thought was mysterious, yeah. that we don't do, you know, why are they studying us up yeah. here? But anyway, the um, that's a 22-year-old study, and they've been following drug users for a really long time, and it's a great source of information for us to say we know the facts, and then we bring in the PhD student with us for the press release, you know what I mean, to say we're doing, because some of the stuff we did was civil disobedience, uh, and it was, we always tried to do it in a well-thought-out way after making every attempt to get changes made. We, uh, Van Du never specifically was able to fund a drug, uh, uh, an injection site or something like that. Um, but we ha- participated in five or six of them because I would take the rent and put it in my own name, work on contract, declare it as an expense, and live in social housing so wow. my housing was subsidized. 
Wow. So, yeah, it's a very, um, I don't know if people think that, um, you think you're going to deprive your children and ruin their lives. I don't know if people could interview my kids. I have four kids. <laughs> yeah. But um, my, my, um, I thought it was really worth it. And I think that it, uh, it takes that kind of insight. You know what I mean? I just, yeah, that sort of I didn't have a mortgage. That's a different thing. Not having, right. You know what I mean? I was in that position, but right. whether it's luck or design or whatever, it was, uh, it was an important um, way to do civil disobedience. And, and um, it's not all we do. We do tons of phone calls if if people are being turned away from the emergency ward and, and um, treated badly and called names. We we make a phone call and try Put to get a, a meeting with the patient. Good, yeah, you, you, you just, I was trying to teach them to think like a middle class Canadian. Yeah. That's an outrage. Yeah. I'm yeah. not putting up with that. Yeah, I'm exactly. calling City Hall. You know what I mean? <laughs> this kind of, that's what I was trying to teach, not some spectacularly different kind of behavior, but citizenship, I call it citizenship 101. Well, so, so many of the, these... The, the difference in people's drug intake is, is, is very difficult to perceive. What I do know is I see people come into Van Du and they start to spend 40 hours a week in the office. Just and hanging out. Uh, they're certainly not paid a wage to do that because we have hardly any money. Right. But the um, there's enough... Uh, they've made a, a task a sort of sheet where... Um, you know, um, the person who um, cleans the floor and makes sure that the harm reduction supplies, people just come in and take them. We don't really count them. We, yeah. we count them in bulk. You know, how much right. did you do this month? That kind of thing. Um, anyway, the, the, there's a stipend for that. And then everything's um, given a certain amount of uh, money for it. But you see people who aren't you know, they're, they're getting little bits of money for doing things, but they're certainly not getting money for staying there all day. Right. And you see them get very, very involved. And I keep thinking to myself, well, are they using less drugs? They certainly have less time to use drugs. Not right. that they can't use at Van Duy because they can. But the, it just seemed like there's a different focus. You right. know what I mean? They're not obsessing about drugs all day or that's their, they're not as isolated. Well, if I, you look at determinants of health, the main one is income. The second one is housing. And the third one is social networking. Interesting. And we have a hell of a time getting income and a hell of a time getting um, uh, housing, although, you know, we encourage people to do that. Yeah. Uh, but the third one, social networking, now that's cheap. Yeah. And that's what Easy. we've been able yeah. to do. So they know more and more people. They know people, um, you know, from the health authority board. They know people that are, you know what I mean? They end yeah. up rubbing shoulders with a whole diverse group of people. And within their own circles, they become people who other people turn to for help because they're so well networked. They're going to know, you know, um, if the methadone program at such and such is better than, you know what I mean, that kind right. of thing. So that's, I think, if if you look at it from a health point of view, in terms of actual uptake of, of drugs, I, I can't guess that they're using less drugs. I mean, there's people who go on to stop using drugs, and then there's people who go back to using drugs. So we tried to make it really clear that drug use needs to be kept somewhat confidential. Hmm. When I go for a job interview, they don't come over to my house and start seeing if there's any wine bottles in my right. blue bin. Right. right. To, um, you know, how much wine does this woman drink? You right. know, and do I even ask her that? They never ask. So we try to stay away from that. I encourage them to stay away from it. Are you competent? Are you performing your duties? Um, are you impaired and you can't perform? You know what I mean? Are you yeah. ready to work? And yeah. are you valued then as a worker? And they shouldn't. They shouldn't say, uh, the only thing that they can say, I think that's important often, is I have experience. That means I know a lot more than you do about this population of people, and I'm valued for that, because we have certain jobs that are now coming across British Columbia, and I think across Canada, that are meant for what they call experiential workers or peers. Yeah, peer and we need support, to be very yeah. cautious with this. Because what I've seen over my lifetime is I've known people that have lived that long, or, you know, most drug, many drug users die, um, but the um, is um, they use drugs and they stop using drugs and they use drugs again and then they stop using drugs. So we tried to put it in our um, in our literature that it's for people who use or used drugs in the past because it gives them that privacy. And right. in millions of meetings that I've attended with people who use drugs, whether it's a reporter or uh, a, a, you know it's a community meeting about something in our community, and you see people look 
you know, look closely at people and I can tell they're trying to figure out if that's a drug user or whether they're stopped. Right. You know, they like this to right. tell. And I say it's so hard to tell if people are using drugs that they have to test your pee. Totally. So let's be clear, you know, this shouldn't be stigmatizing. And um, I encourage, you know, I mean, we all use drugs and yeah. what and drugs we use is usually just our private business, you right. know. So I try to encourage them to take that stance and not get into too much trouble with it. And there's trouble enough, believe me, with with um, people working that, you know, because of the the criminalization, people rarely don't have a criminal record. Right. Like, it was a big joke at our place. They said, are you going to get criminal record checks for your volunteers? <laughs> we sort of giggle, you know, what do you mean? We, we might reject them if they don't have a criminal record. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was our joke. But we, we do. <laughs> a street We're cred. careful because... Well, there's some criminal records that you need to be cautious of, and that would be right. people who are predatory sexually. Right. So. Right. There's definitely those. There's definitely those that that have moved in and to take advantage. I know here, that's. I was going to ask you because that's um, that's an issue that I've noticed um, in our community because we have we have organizations that have stepped up and you know they're trying to fill a void and it becomes a meeting place, um, kind of a hub for people that are that are very mm-hmm. disenfranchised, um, but at the same time. Then you also have the predators that move in that, you know, they, they themselves, when you get actually talking to them, they've had horrific lives as well and are just making, and are making horrendous decisions, but they're choosing to prey off of others. And, and, you know, we, we have, we have a, an organization here that, that provides some housing and, and it seemed like they bit off a little bit more than they can chew regarding, um, what they offer. So I mean, they have, it's, it's kind of a catch all. Like it, it's, it was initially a supported living environment and then now it's also a detox. Mm-hmm. And now we also have beds that, but it's because the, the community pressure, somebody needs to step up to do something and nobody is. And so this organization, thank goodness they're willing to accept all of it, but you know, you're, it seems odd to put people that are need, need assisted living because they have a cognitive disability in, mm-hmm. in, in with a detox center in with now, um, you know, uh, uh, agonist replacement therapy program. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, it's the, the first time in my life I've seen people that are suffering from autism, down syndrome, and they're, they're hitting a meth pipe. And for some reason that's really hard to look at. And that's just simply because well, predators have moved you know, through their building. <laughs> yeah. It's tough. It, all this stuff is tough. I, I have my child who has cerebral palsy is now 36 and he drinks a lot more than I'm comfortable with, but yeah. I know why he drinks. It's heartbreaking. He's right. isolated. He, you know, he's yeah. a failure of, of, um, having, and you know, he's going to have his own path on that. There's not, you know, it's a tough one. Right. It's not good, but I think the more I might try to control his drinking, the more underground he'll just go with it. Right. So I just try to be, um, anyway, I, I don't, the mental health and addictions, it's a very, um, you know, the, there's a lot of demonizing of drug users preying on people with mental health. And, of course, what they do here is they always say mental health and addictions. And I always go mental health and addiction. Yeah. Because if yeah. you look at the way the budget's spent, they don't spend any money on You're addictions. Right. You're right. You know, so because right. we, you know, we need to um, finally, um, the BC Center on Substance Use here is going to, um, and the, the law, I think the legislation is going through that if you were running a, a rehabilitation um, facility, you know, for drug use, um, a treatment center, as they call them, yeah. that you, they won't just come around and make sure you've got food safe in the kitchen and whether the bathrooms, you know what I mean? That yeah. sort of physical facilities. Okay. Now they're going to say, what is your programming here? Right. Driving people to AA meetings three times a day might not be what we call a full, a robust um, program. That's right. You know, you, you know what I mean? So everyone's been getting away with a lot in this and, and, um, the, but the pressure really comes on to drug users who start their own groups. I mean, we, we get frowned upon. On the other hand, I just, I think that once people meet the group and hear the kind of intelligent approach that they're taking, um, it's very charming. It's disarming. Yeah. And they'll go, holy crow, do they ever know what they're talking about? And I say, yeah, <laughs> their, yeah, their life and death is wound up in this. This is, this is a very, very serious matter. And they, I think the other, the part that gets the hardest is if, if um, people who use drugs get power over other drug users, that they might want to imitate their oppressors, which can often seem like they want to turn the other drug users into their clients. I see. And that's why I keep referring back to this meeting support, because that's not allowed in um, 12-step groups. 
you not to start taking on a big role and preaching at people. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but um, but trying to make sure that it's mutual help is um, an important principle because it's, it won't be attractive to people to go and be clientized by another person. So you sit in a room, you get less than 200 a month to live on or somewhere around there out of your 710 welfare check because the rest of it gets mailed directly to your landlord. If you have no landlord, they won't give it to you. They don't give you money to live in your car. Right. So you just get this lousy 200 bucks, and you're sitting across from someone who may be pulling much higher wages than you, and their their job is dependent on your misery. It starts to be a very um, untenable kind of way to solve a problem. It's just not going to work, right. I don't think. And as we see this thing get tougher and um, killing more and more people and seem not to have an end, it, it would appear that no one's going to go back to planting acres and acres of poppies, which they have to pick, and then um, do all the chemistry to turn into heroin. That, uh, when they can take two or three things, or you and I, I'm pretty sure, with with a, a nice you know, set of instructions, a good yeah. recipe, we could make fentanyl. Totally. And it's cheap, and it's so strong. It just seems like I don't know if anyone's going to go back. And, um, of course, the challenge being that people will go back if they don't ever have to pay for fentanyl, and they could be prescribed drugs from their doctor directly. Of course. And that's the excitement about the heroin prescription program. Yeah, is that, but, is that um, starting to grow? Is that starting to grow? I know it's... Well... I, I talked to Garth <laughs> Mullins on the podcast, and he was he was telling me that um, it's it seems like it's been the same people on this program forever. They yeah. added 17 new ones. So I go to the Saturday meetings sometimes. Like Garth should could go could go interview those guys because they're usually right on the ground they know whether new people are in their clinic yeah and um so they're trying to say um well the rumor was and i haven't checked the data yet um 17 new people come in and 12 of them don't come back and people are going they're not coming back for pharmaceutical grade heroin what the hell's going on yeah they like fentanyl they don't like heroin they like fentanyl so I'm saying, well, get them fentanyl. Like, how hard is that? Well, you already but have it. it. They, they do these, <laughs> yeah, it's already, well, in, the, you know, it's already in the medical confront, system. Well, no. Well, you can't get, I mean, legal fentanyl that won't kill you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm they give they give, become, they give fentanyl out in hospitals all the time, like to patients. Well, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so but a, they, they you know what they'll say? So here's the line. So prepare yourself for it. They'll say, it's hard to dose. Yeah. And I just think, are you serious? I can get you some street users that'll show you yeah. how to dose fentanyl. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, <laughs> because they always make this huge rigmarole, and they write up it has to pass through the College of Physicians and Surgeons, it has to go through the right. Ministry of Health, it as has, if they're like, the experts. They make these stupid obstacles, yeah. and then we have to count dead bodies on the front line, just, right. just all about passing out from our level of grief. It, it, the grief itself accelerates these deaths. Right. You just can't cope after a while. You know, there's there's a sort of an inevitability and there's just the grimness of it. We've got terrible welfare legislation here. People get cut off their welfare if they don't provide proof of looking for work. And if they're released from jail, they'll get a check. But if And they're just wild when they get out of jail. They're just right. a mess. Yeah, that's where and a lot the, of the overdoses they, occur is right out of jail. Yeah, and even if it's a month or two later, but they don't. Their welfare is only for one month and maybe two if they're lucky, and then they get cut off. And I'm going, why do we want people in our alleys that aren't on welfare? Because I'll tell you who hires them. Mm-hmm. Enforcers hire them. Exactly. The people that deal drugs will hire them to go um, collect drug debts because it's a really fucking horrible job. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, you have totally. To, like it's totally. dangerous. And, and then they're paid in drugs. I'm yeah. like, wow, is, is that the system we want to have all around us in our alleys? Because that's... We, People are released to the place they were arrested in BC. I don't know if you have that problem there. So you're basically taking them right back to, um, it's not like someone, you know, the release planning only seems to go on in federal institutions. I'm not hearing about it in provincial, although you may speak to somebody once. But people are in remand here. And 70% of the prisoners in Canada are in remand. That means they get held waiting for court and they haven't seen a judge yet and so and there's no programming in there they're maximum security it's grim as hell as far as i know i'm not hearing anything good about it no and no one will do any release planning with them so they just dump them back on the streets yeah our uh i know that they're the tribal council here um i can't remember the chief's name off the top of my head but he i know that they're right now working at getting some programming into uh 
into remand because it's a joke because a lot of time that's the entire sentence is served and then once then when court comes okay. around they say okay the person got time served and then they're just released okay. and they and they went to basically a holding facility which actually gave them no life skills it gave them no nope. they can't like it, it, as odd as it sounds prison you should come out of prison with a slightly different skill set than you went in that's the that's the whole theoretical idea but unfortunately we're not providing anything but but a corral well it's so predictable what's going to happen they right. also can release them with these conditions that nobody can comply with <laughs> so my yeah. great dream in the next little while is to to get um i guess people who use drugs trained in how to take someone back to court and get their conditions changed that's a good that's because a good idea, um yeah. it's such a trap and it's such a predictable trap and you know, there's just, I don't know how to describe it, but people with no future use drugs recklessly. And right. that's what is causing the, the deaths, um, partly, you know. Once the word's out about how to use these things safely, um, I was involved in setting up the tents in the alley for the first overdose prevention site. And we did it out of desperation because we were basically running up and down um, the street. We were running an outdoor street market, so you can really hear what's going on. And we'd make sure we had an Narcan kit, but geez, we needed like five, ten a day. It was just wow. nuts. So we just said, okay, come here and use your drugs. And I knew a thing or two about that because I'd done it like six times before. Yeah. And um, when it became obvious that the um, most reckless drug use was people who couldn't get welfare. In BC, if you don't have welfare, there's a thing called a medical services plan payment that you need to make monthly. And if you're on welfare, welfare makes that payment on your behalf but if your welfare is cut off no one makes the payment now you can't go to a, a scheduled doctor's appointment oh, wow. and until february 2017 because i started writing letters and squawking at everybody i said your doctors are handing people scripts for methadone which is a good idea if yeah. someone's an overdose yeah look can you go get on this you know um then uh they would go to the pharmacy with it and the pharmacy would say your msd is not covered there's no Pharmacare covering this, so I can't give you your script. So they did fix that. But the irony is that now you could be homeless and could keep your method on. Well, you know, like, couldn't we just float the ships on the harbor a little here? Yeah. Not ever having an income, not ever having housing, and having no hope for ever getting an income or housing. Like, if people can get on disability, it changes their lives so much because they don't have the requirements of having to look for work each each and proving it each month right and then they don't go through these endless welfare cutoffs and after a while people just say you know it's beneath their dignity to go back to that office with those security guards where they might lose their temper because they've been cut off that many times it, it's it i can't i'm wondering why people do as well as they do i mean it, it's so um clearly um and trying to get the health people to take action on welfare and we got a new ndp government no action they have right. not done it. If you have a warrant for your arrest, they won't give you a, a welfare check. Oh, really? And, um, yeah, women lose their lives over this. It was a woman from Saskatchewan who they did a coroner's inquest, and uh, she was denied welfare for having a warrant and uh, was found. I think um, she probably died that weekend, but her body wasn't found for five months huh. because, again, the same scenario. They reported to the police. The police wouldn't take the report. The family was putting up. Um, posters or getting people to put up posters, but um, there was no official missing report. And then when they found her body, it was so badly decomposed that they really didn't get the cause of death. So we, we don't know. Um, uh, she was naked. Uh, so people were going, I don't think she went in the woods naked alone. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I wonder but, which, um, I wonder which one that is. Oh, it's um, awful. Well, I can't think up. of her name. I, end, I ended up in counseling because I had <laughs> <laughs> You're so stressed out about it. Well, I have a sister-in-law who went missing in 1992. Oh, man. And so I moved to this neighborhood where she had gone missing from. And at that point, it, we couldn't get them to take... Um, it took eight years for the police to take the missing person's report. Wow. Well, I, can, I can tell it, you now there's been a drastic change uh, yeah. uh, in, in, missing, in missing people policy as far as police are concerned. Now it's... Now it's... Uh, they investigate every... And, and I mean, it's... It's frustrating as a as a cop some days, but I understand why it's there because there is the extreme cases where something severe happens. So we have the chronic runaways that run away every day from oh, their yeah. from their foster homes, and we treat them as if mm -hmm. they've been missing for the last fifteen years with with you know a lot of boots on the ground looking for them, and and they are vulnerable, so it is good, but it does definitely get yeah. uh, get frustrating for well, the guys. Well, the biggest 
the biggest problem is having a warrant. If a, if a woman has a warrant for her arrest, the predators can absolutely trap her because um, she'll right. be picked up run. on a warrant. It's a yep. never good, never a good day to get picked up on a warrant. I don't know. Um, and that's another skill I've seen. Um, I don't know if you've ever interviewed Erica Thompson, but that woman knows everything, and she knows how to take a woman. She was working with women solely. Now she yep. works um, and doing peer stuff in Fraser. Um, to and, and she was lucky in Abbotsford. She had a peace agreement with them where they wouldn't just grab her and, uh, you know what I mean, and yeah. arrest her on the warrant. And she would take them to resolve the warrants. So, and she also knew how to rewrite conditions of release, which is oh. terrifically life-saving. Oh, I definitely. mean, if we're going to tackle this anywhere, I'm, I'm in love with the LEAD program, the Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion, yeah. only... I don't think it's a be-all and end-all, but it really helps the most marginalized people because uh, once they're on the list of do not arrest, except for, you know, like murder, assault, you know, real yeah, yeah. crimes, yeah, yeah. but they're not going to get picked up on any more of these uh, kind of failing to comply, failing to comply yeah, with breach conditions. Of their yeah. or whatever, right? And then they just go on and on. And people, I, straight people don't know what I'm talking about. Anyone who knows what I'm talking about knows also what the word time served means. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Signal. But it's a huge racket, and the police are rewarded with overtime. And it, it would be great to the, – the Seattle police, I've, I've never met them yet. I'm trying to get them up here to talk to the police locally because yeah. we want policing we can be proud of, and police want policing they can be proud That's of right. too. And, That's right. Um, so it, what's great about that, when you hear them speak um, – They'll talk about their doubts and how they first started, but they're really happy now that when they come across that guy who they've arrested that many times, still in a mess, no yeah. one, you know, he's not getting anything resolved. Right. And they've got, a, especially if it's a 911 call, so they, they feel like they've got to arrest the guy. Um, now they can do the third way. You can either leave the guy, arrest the guy, but now you can do the third thing, which is to take them to um, their resource center. So they've, you know, it's right. just a diversion. So yeah. you just say, okay, geez, Anne. Come with me. Yeah. <laughs> Things aren't going well, Anne. Yeah. <laughs> and they well, just it's... grab me, put me in the... Um, and, and it's weird because it's actually under corrections, um, however they do this. But um, they don't threaten them with jail. So if they fail a hundred times, it doesn't matter. They're still in the program. Yeah, I'm going to... So, and they're allowed to... It's a very interesting program. Yeah, I've done I've done a bit of reading on it, and uh, it's it's definitely it's definitely a, it's something interesting and something I'd like to have on the podcast to talk about for sure. I like mm -hmm. hearing. Uh, it's also nice because oftentimes when it comes to the police and drug user relationship, um, mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of people think that this day and age it's kind of how it was back in, you know, the start of prohibition where it was just kind of. You know, here's a drug user. Let's kick the shit out of him, steal his drugs, and take him to jail. Where the reality is, is a lot of the cops, especially if they're downtown beat cops, <clears throat> excuse me, if they're downtown beat cops or they've been working that core neighborhood for a long time, we have good relationships with these people, and and mm -hmm. a lot of them, a lot of these relationships, you know, they're some. I know there's a lot of police officers that are the person, the, the individual has no one else to turn to. And oftentimes they're calling the office looking for these cops just to have a chat with them or go like, because they get it. So they've been involved in the environment and, and it's, you're right when you say that police want programs that they can be proud of and, and what we're mm -hmm. doing is not working. And we're seeing that some of our own actions as police officers are, are actually um, making the lives worse of the individuals that we're actually sworn to help. I mean, you ask mm -hmm. you ask any cop across the country, why'd you sign up? They say, well, because I wanted to help people. I wanted to help my community. I wanted to serve. And then when you're doing that, but yet you're also seeing that, well, this isn't working. Like this isn't, mm -hmm. you know, I know so-and-so I've developed a relationship with him. His life's getting worse. Like, what can we do? We should, we need to do something. Mm -hmm. But I think that's also yeah, important where we stop. Very hopeful. Yeah. But I also yeah. don't, I've, I've never been a believer that police services should, should be the ones to run and organize social programs either. And so, well, no, but they, they the police here elbow their way into that business because right. when we looked at the mental health, I read widely. I, I started to get curious about the section, uh, section, what do we call it? Here we call it section 28 or anyway, you get sectioned under the Mental Health Act. Oh, okay. And so yeah. they suddenly increased in our neighborhood. So I started to just do all the research to find out more about it. And I, all, if you read the big Canadian reports, on mental health, the very first time someone's diagnosed with a mental illness, most commonly, it's because of an interaction with a police officer. That's right. 
that is that is a really condemning um, to say what kind of services we have for people totally. who are labeled mentally ill. Because so that, that means their behavior has gotten so extreme that it required police response, and then the yeah, police get there and, and they're that, like, whoa. And that's your first way in. You yeah. can imagine how it, 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 all it does is increase trauma with trauma with trauma. And of course, it's at the core of a lot of addiction and mental illness is trauma. The, the woman's name, um, who was from Saskatchewan, I testified at the coroner's inquest. Her name was Deanna Desjardins. Oh, okay. And, um, so that's all. I just yeah, remembered you. her name. Yeah, I'll definitely uh, look that up. So the the um the what I find too though is that um whether we're going to make peace with between the pro abstinence people and who who regard harm reduction as encouraging drug use, this is taking <laughs> a really long time. I was and, just gonna, um, I was just going to ask you, and that was going to be my final line of questioning to you was was going to mm-hmm. be, you care. I care about the people that, that we police. I've been mm-hmm. I've been in the community long enough, working in this this environment that I, I want to do something to make a difference. You're mm-hmm. you're you've you've made great sacrifice on your own personal life to be able to go in and help these individuals. But what do we do, and how do we get on board the average citizen who is my neighbor right now, who thinks mm-hmm. who thinks. I'm paying a lot of taxes, and this person on welfare over here is costing me too much money, and we need to implement, you know, we need to, if, if they're breaking into my garage, they need to go to jail because, you know, it's just feeding their addiction, keep all drugs illegal. How do we get those people's mind to change and, and to care in a different manner? I think um, a lot of financial analysis needs to go on. There is no place more expensive to put someone than uh, a hospital room and a jail cell. They're just absolutely shockingly costly, both of those. And that's what we offer people. So we don't have any sense of how cheap welfare is and how incredibly important it is for people um, to be able to land somewhere, I call it. If you can't land anywhere, how are you ever going to be able to attempt to stop using drugs? You know, the, it, it, it um, isn't that someone bottoms out. It's the, people, you know, I've been to thousands of AA meetings. I was married to a, an alcoholic and um, I went to the, um, you know, the open meetings or whatever. And I listened yeah. to thousands and thousands of stories. So they'll say, how was it? What happened and how it is now? And people think that um, what happened was they were so degraded that in that moment they made a decision to stop using. But that's not what you got to listen closer. What they heard, what, what happened usually is they saw uh, a place they could be. They had a thought that, Oh, I don't have to do this forever. And there's hope for me in the future. And I think that's why harm reduction is so terrifically important is that you can't keep feeding people defeat and then expect them to even stay alive. And of course that's what our bottom here is death. Right. You know, you don't, but I think um, if we look at the financial analysis and then also look at how how um, common addiction is, moms stop the harm are a tremendously important group of people yes, because they're thinking enough so that they just, you know, sometimes you'll get, um, I want my 14-year-old arrested and held in a jail cell so she can't use drugs. Right. Some pimp's got a hold of her and that'll protect her. Right. Well, if that worked, that'd be great. But there's no research that shows that that works. And in fact, when she's released, she'll be using more drugs than ever and be hiding from anyone who's out to help her. Because the last time you helped her, it was such a negative interaction. You know what I mean? Right. You make people what I call treatment resistant. Um, what what uh, is shocking when we we could we should be doing huge public education campaigns. Yes. The the studies from the really long long heroin trials they've done in and they aren't trials. It's a program in Switzerland. Twenty five years, maybe thirty years. It's gone on a long time. What they find is that by getting someone the drug they're addicted to, they start to calm down. A person who uses drugs and has to score and find the drugs and be involved in the criminal market and find the money for it, which is all overpriced. You know, this is a That's the 24 risky hours. Side. They're yeah. the hardest working yeah. people I've ever met. I can tell you that. Yeah. Yeah. And um, when they, when their day suddenly just yawns before them empty because they just have to go pick up their heroin today, given that the, the structure of those programs has someone saying, are you homeless? Let's get you housing. And they have to go back three times a day, every single day, often for more than half an hour. 
Right. So you've got so much time to work with them. And all the data from that shows, you know, you're going to lose 10% off the get-go. You're going to lose another 20 over a period of time. But once you're down to the people that have stayed on the program for 18 months, that's 18 months, seven days a week, three times a day. That's dedication. Yeah. Those people have an abstinence rate, and they don't count abstinence unless you've got two years clean, of 24, 25%. These wow. are very, very impressive numbers. Those are very and it's impressive because numbers. you so cautiously led them forward. People who use these opiates are terrified of, of um, withdrawal. They've withdrawn in cells where they yeah. almost died, and right. people do die. Or do die, it's yeah. Extremely I've, difficult. I've known people that die um, from their withdrawals alone. Yeah. Yeah. So the we need to um, understand that encouraging things are encouraging, and discouraging things aren't. And a heroin prescription programs a lot cheaper than jail and right. hospital rooms. Right. So again, you know. Um, I think that the public education piece of this is really missing. I'm always disappointed that someone isn't doing it more. I do as much as I can, and yeah, I that's don't think the... my PowerPoints are too long. <laughs> well, that's 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 what our program really was, uh, and I mean that's that's what we are. we're the Say No Drug Education Project, and it started as a spinoff. I came out of uh, I came out of five years of doing nothing but drug enforcement and traveling the country, mm-hmm. and uh, my career was coming to an end. And I did some reflection. I'm like, well, this. Well, that was a waste of time. <laughs> like I did, I did nothing. And there's more drugs now. There's more people dying from drugs now. What the hell can mm-hmm. can we do? And then I started to realize, well, no one actually understands. Mm-hmm. No one actually understands what the average addicted person is. Like they just don't mm-hmm. get that concept to them as is foreign. And so I, that's what we do. I mean, we start bringing people with lived experience around to presentations, and now we mostly consult mm-hmm. with professional organ associations and nurses and doctors and and people are just sitting there with their mouths hanging open listening to these members of our group tell their life story as if mm-hmm. this is the first time they're they've connected the fact that people that have been abused as children are more likely to become addicted to drugs it's like this was something mm-hmm. that was been common sense for most people forever but the ones that are mm-hmm. actually in the fields they're not recognizing that so you're right education yeah. i think is we've got a lot to do i mean i do. think um the other thing is it's the, the quick, easy, um, sort of rabid solutions, oh, let them die or, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, put them all in jail. Like, they come yeah. up with these things, but they aren't well thought through. No. And the Mom Stop the Harm group, I find them very, very smart. They are they the are, only yeah. other ones know what time served is, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, they're the kids, great. By the time they're kids and they, they give up 10 years of their lives chasing around through this completely unworkable system of detox, treatment that you have to mortgage your house to send your kid to and they walk straight out of treatment and use again you would be way better off to to fund a heroin prescription program definitely where if at least you could get them stabilized you know what i mean if they're gonna if it's the magic sauce and it's really the time they're gonna do this because you know the other reason that people i think do so well on those prescription programs is that if they relapse they can go back if you're an abstinence-based person and you relapse it usually means that there's a horrible incident where right. you might have taken something from your family. They can't find you. They're frantic. That's a good um, point. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or relapsing is so dangerous now you just die. But if you if you could say, look, I'm having trouble. I'm I want to come back onto heroin, and you went to your physician and he put you back on some incredibly low dose. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And, and then, then they let you try to dribble it out again. I mean, well, it's and like you didn't have any to... relapse with anything. Yeah, and you didn't have you know, to steal you... from the family that ca- that cares about you. You didn't have to let anybody I down. I know, after than... repairing those yeah. relationships, it's yeah. just tragic. And a, um, so anyway, that's the other reason I think psychologically why you'd have the courage to go straight to abstinence, like just wean it, because and also heroin's very, sort of a more short-acting drug, so it has a uh, a better weaning schedule than methadone. Methadone is very, very tough to wean yeah, off of because yeah. I don't know if you know that. Uh, yeah, it and, is. Yeah. And of course, Valium and these things are even worse. Any long acting drug has a very difficult weaning where if the drug is quite short acting, it's not so bad. Like, right. you know, we all know about alcohol. And you're also um, changing you know, the way somebody uses, like the methadone program is great and it works for some people, but you're also mm-hmm. getting that person to change their habit. And that I think mm-hmm. that, oh, that's yeah, often they have a, a barrier. Different life. Yeah, like you're. And that's. Yeah. Yeah, we you know the methadone program is so easy to to um, criticize because it's so badly run, and it, right. as soon as they fix one thing, something else is up. We got crooked pharmacists. We've got pharmacists bribing people to come because it's so lucrative. We've got 
physicians um, will only do it for a couple of years and buy their car or whatever cottage. I don't know. It's so lucrative. Mm. And then they just abandon their, their patients. Like we've got every possible thing. And you, if you look around the world, I was fascinated in uh, Germany many years ago. If you went on methadone, they moved you into housing. Wow. You had housing and methadone together because living in an alley and getting methadone is, you yeah. know, got such a limited value. The right. other one is that we need to talk about stimulant replacement therapy. Definitely. If people are going to be doing crystal meth and cocaine, and many of them are already on methadone, and many of the, even people in the heroin prescription program will be using stimulants. It keeps them engaged in the criminalized market. Definitely. You know, if, if people want to leave that life behind, then they should be able to leave it behind. And I don't know why people need stimulants. It sounds like half the bloody population of the U.S. took Adderall when they went to college or That's they right. would have flunked out. So I don't know for sure. There's a really, I noticed a, there's a documentary, it looks like, about it now. But, you know, we, we, um, we know what can work. We just have to stop the bloody drama and yes. making everything take so long to implement. Yeah. By the time we've responded now to the heroin crisis, we now have a fentanyl crisis. And if you've got people walking away from heroin saying they prefer fentanyl, that really speaks volumes. And you just want to look at them, slap them upside the head and say, are you serious? Give right. them the damn fentanyl then. Right. But our goal isn't, oh, aren't we great? We're doing heroin prescription and all these egos and, <laughs> and um, careers that people build and papers they publish. It needs to be front and center. We're a community of people who care about each other, and we want these deaths to stop. Right. Let's just get on it and stay on it till it's done. And it's not that. Um, I think you can find out the information. There's always another flaw. There's always another story that I didn't think of. I you know, we found out people were being held in city cells, and I'm going, what the hell are city cells? Yeah, we all think stations. remand. I think right. there's whoosh, Dr. Remand, right away. You can sit in city cells from Friday to Monday, yeah, definitely. and they refuse to deliver the methadone to you. And yeah, so well, the person gets released on Monday morning, and then they go back to their pharmacist, and he gives them some confusing baloney about how they missed their doses, so he's cut them off. It goes, and I just think, how could this be going on with all this money being spent on it? And the, you know what they do? Score some street drugs and die. Yeah. This is the danger. We just want yeah. to say, you know, let's all start singing from the same songbook here. We have a simple goal, and that is to reduce the death and, and disease associated with this. And, and overall, it will reduce addictions. That's if right. you have a huge culture of addictions going on in a city, it's like leaving a, you know, a pit with no fence around it for children might fall in and they might not. Right. Yeah. You know, because... It's better to have it, um, you know, my kids, when they wanted alcohol, they asked me to go buy them alcohol, and I got to have the talk. Right. And um, when they wanted marijuana, I didn't even know they were smoking marijuana because they bought it off a kid at school. Right. His parents were involved in the drug trade. And there's way more control if, if I'm, as a parent, going to say, look, I don't mind you guys drinking. Where are you going to be drinking? Who's going to be there? Right. Um, you know that I'm breaking the safe. law if yeah. I give you this alcohol and your friend then goes out and smashes a window or something happens to him and they come back and say, who bought that alcohol at Van Livingston? She's, that's a criminal act. <laughs> you, you guys need to understand what we're talking about here. Right. And it's a good talk to have. Yeah, they kind is. of go, hmm. And I, you know, and then it gives me a chance to create a kind of culture around the way they drink, that right. they are, you Aware. know, cognizant of yeah. the safety and, you know, Making where are you going to be at what time? And That's right. Yeah, if, if you're passed out cold in a park or if you drink um, a lot of, we lose five, six hundred kids a year, every year in Canada, and those are the ones that we know about, right. who who think that they can chug a 26er of straight booze. Like, right. it, it's, who knew? Exactly. I didn't know that, that, that um, kids do that. It's kind of, you know, I can drink more than you. Like, I yes. don't know how it gets going, but those um, those are preventable deaths. And Definitely. it's to the disgrace of adults around those people that who haven't explained to them about, you know, what the substance is, what it can, you drinking, know what I mean? harm reduction principles, yeah. all that, yeah. Well, Anne, yeah, as, as anyway. Yeah, th well, th Anne, thanks a lot. I think uh, you've given me and I'm sure our mm -hmm. listeners a lot to think about. Where where can people go if they have some more information or if they want to start similar programs? Do you have anywhere you could refer them online or or anything like well, that? Well, the the easiest way to get a hold of me is on Facebook, and I use my proper name, Anne Livingston, with no E on Anne and no E on Livingston, and it will say Vancouver or whatever. Okay, and uh, they can just send me a message. And I try and check them from, and I think my cell phone number is even on there. So oh, wow. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. So, and, um, you, well, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot of work to do. And I think a lot of, 
um, a lot of people feel highly motivated to take action. It would be great if we could learn from each other and build on successes rather than Definitely. feeling like we all have to start over. Definitely. Well, well, thanks a lot for all the great work that you've done, not only for your community, but the, the ripple effect that it's had on our country. Um, I hope when, when the, if we come in the next year to with the ability to clone somebody, I'm going to say, well, let's clone Ann Livingston for a few years anyways, because she can help at least remove some of the harm in each of our communities. But uh, thanks, thanks a lot for everything you're doing and uh, for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Say No KNOW.org podcast. Please head over to your social media pages and follow us. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Twitter handle is at SayNoOrg. Also, check out our website, www.SayNoKNOW.org. And most importantly of all, please hit the subscribe button on wherever you're listening to this podcast. And tell all your friends and family, because we need all the support we can get. We're in this together. We're trying to make some positive changes in our community. And as far as we know, education, sharing stories is definitely the best way to do that. So catch you next time.